Have you ever noticed that uh, when you try to uh, get even with another person for something they've done to offend you, that it often backfires? We see this often, you know, in, the, in what I call the, the law of retaliation. It's kind of like, you know, if you have children, you always see the, 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 the uh, reaction and not the action that created the reaction. And it's kind of like, uh, same with, we see it often in sports, where we see the reaction, and unless there was instant replay or there was cameras, uh, you wouldn't have saw the action that led to it. And uh, so oftentimes, um, you know, we end up getting in trouble because we, we want to try to get even with this person who has offended us in some way. And uh, today, uh, I've come across a story that I think will help introduce our topic, and that is a story is told of a preacher who forgot his notes uh, for the sermon he was going to preach. Now, that's every preacher's nightmare. And uh, just to let you know, it should be every congregation's nightmare. <laughs> you should be praying that I never leave my notes at home. Uh, you know, it's because it's one of those things where this guy figured, well, you know what, I, I think I can wing it. And uh, so he, he, he ended up preaching his sermon, but he got some of the facts of this particular passage twisted. And uh, he said that, for example, he said Jesus took 4,000 barley loaves and 6,000 fish and fed 24 people <laughs> and had plenty left over. <laughs> and when he said that, someone in the congregation yelled out, well, you know what, anybody could do that. And he's already rattled the pastor and he said, well, yeah, uh, buddy, can, can you do that? And he said, I certainly could. And the pastor didn't know what else to say. And after the service, he was riding home with his wife and he was moaning and groaning about, he can't believe this guy yelled at and put him on the spot and embarrassed him. And, and, uh, and she said, well, honey, let me explain to you, you know, kind of why he said what he did. I mean, you know, you had Jesus with 6,000 loaves of bread and, you know, and, uh, and, and 6,000 fish and 4,000 loaves of bread and 24 people, you know, that could pretty much feed him. And... Uh, <laughs> He said, well, you know what, though? Well, next week, I'm not going to forget my notes, and I'm going I'm to get even with that guy. <laughs> next week came. He steps forward. He starts to preach. And wouldn't you know, he found a way to bring up the miracles of the loaves and the fish. And he told how the five barley loaves and the two fish had fed probably a multitude of 24,000 people. He then pointed to the guy, and he said, could you do that? And the guy said to him, yes, I could. And the pastor now, he's like, now he doesn't know what to say. So, well, how, are you gonna, how could you do that? He goes, well, I just, I just used all the, the, the bread and the fish left over from your sermon last week. <laughs> it's like, ah. What's the point? The point is often, if not always, in our desire to get even, you know, we end up hurting or embarrassing only ourselves. You know, in our last uh, time that we were together, we, we learned that the number one way to reconcile broken relationships was to ask for and extend forgiveness to one another. Forgiveness is the oil of relationships. It reduces the natural friction and tension that occurs between people. And what we're learning is that, you know, God wants us to be like Jesus. And Jesus is a servant. 
The Bible says that um, he is a servant. And today in the, in the message that we'll look at is that we're going to look at a genuine servant forgives and forgets. And as I mentioned, you know, Mark chapter 10, verse 45 is the key verse that we're going to look at and, and uh, also that we're going to memorize. How many of you have memorized Mark 10, 45? You have? You have? Have you really? Let me hear it. Oh, it's on the screen. Oh, it's on the screen. Oh. Hey, you got it? Still got it? Nice. All right. Don't, don't play. Now, I'm just telling you now, don't play that bluffing game with me. Now, when I ask you a question, you raise your hand, anything could happen. For, let's, let's throw that back up there. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And you know what? And the Bible says that we're to be like Jesus. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give. And, uh, you know, and that's what we saw the last time that we were together, the whole idea of, you know, forgiveness. You know, if you think about Jesus and you think about his life, there's one thing that, that immediately comes to mind, and that is that he is a God who forgives. He forgives. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If you think about the forgiveness that he extends to all who come to him, all who repent, to all who in humility would come and just ask for and seek forgiveness, the Bible says that God forgives us. And uh, the last time we were together, we saw there were two paths that lead to forgiveness out of Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. You know, when, when, we've, when we have offended others, uh, whether deliberately or unintentionally, we're called to do specific things. If you've got your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 again, just as a reminder that if we have offended somebody or that we've heard that we've offended somebody or they think that we've offended them, but very specifically, God's word tells us that we have a responsibility ahead of us. If we're pre presenting your offering at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. You know, the Bible's very clear that if you hear that you've offended somebody, you're to stop everything that you're doing, you're to deal with it. You're not to put it off, you're not to try to, uh, you know, uh, uh, somehow or another, you know, put it under the rug, you're not to blow it off, you're not to ignore it, you're not to pretend that it's not happening, you're to deal with it. And the, the one thing that, you know, that, I, that we need to recognize and understand is that God's word calls for us to deal with things not to ignore things, not to hope things go away, but to deal with things. We're confronted to, you know, be obedient to God's word. And so we're to stop everything that we're doing. We're to go to that person, and in some way we're to go to them and reconcile or try to make an attempt to alter or change the mind of that person who, whatever they think and whyever they, however they've come to that conclusion, were to change their mind, at least try to change their mind, make an attempt. 
And after asking for forgiveness, regardless of what their response is, then we have been obedient to God. And we're to then go back to serving the Lord. And the Bible says that, you know, that God demands obedience and not sacrifice. That as we are confronted with these truths in God's word, and as, and as we think about this, you know, ask yourself the question, or I'll ask you the question, and that is this. You know, this is what we were confronted with. How many actually have taken action this past week? Taken action. There's a handful, one, two, at 800. That's good. That's pretty impressive. We got some work to do in this area. But the bottom line is, is that, you know what, we're to take action. I mean, and you know what, and, and I'm not going to doubt you because I, if, if you don't have, you know, anything that's going on or if there's no problems in your life or with relationships with other people, uh, that's great. Praise God. You know, we're to live lives of no regrets. Um, but uh, just ask yourself, you know, reasonably, out of 800 people, only three people have relationship problems that they needed to deal with last week. Wow. You're a great group of people. <laughs> but the bottom line is, is that, you know, we need to be more serious about being doers of God's word and not hearers only. You know, we walk out and we go, man, you know what? There's some things I need to get right before God. And before we get to our cars, and certainly before we get to lunch, or at least before we get home from lunch, we've pretty much talked ourselves out of being obedient to God. Well, you know, that's, it's not that bad. I don't think it really pertains to this particular situation or this person. And that's troubling because the bottom line is, is that at that moment in time when God's Spirit speaks to you, you know, write it down. I need to call so-and-so. I need to make this right. I need, I need to do this because God demands it of me. Genuine servants forgive, but there's, there's effort involved. And we need to recognize that, you know what, it's not going to happen without some active participation on our part. We also saw that when we've been offended, you know, what are we supposed to do? And in Matthew chapter 18, we saw in great depth, you know, we're just, to, we're to continue to forgive people. Peter said, hey, Lord, how many times I got to forgive? Seven times? Sounds good. Seven times would be tough with, it sounds like with our group. <laughs> seven times. You know, but he said, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. We're going to have unlimited opportunities to have to deal with and forgive others for some of the problems that, we, that, that, that take place in this lifetime. We're to realize that forgiving is possible only as a, um, a response to the grace of God in our lives, and it's supernatural, not natural. We're to resist the temptation to be hypocritical. If you remember the parable where the guy was owed only a couple of dollars and he was forgiven his debt and he went after, I mean, he was owed an astronomical amount of money and forgiven his debt and then went after somebody that owed him hardly anything. And so he was a hypocrite. And his master heard about it and he, and he became angry because of that. And so we're to resist being hypocritical. And we're also to, you know, you know, re, 
make sure that we don't get caught up in refusing to forgive others in our life, our lives because it has serious consequences for ourselves. And which this leads to the second part of forgiveness, which quite frankly must be present if genuine forgiveness is to take place, and that is this. Forgiveness is only possible when we choose to forget the offense. <clears throat> you cannot forgive and remember the offense. If forgiveness is the key to reconciliation, then forgetting the offense is the key to forgiveness. Do you follow me? If forgiveness is the key to reconciliation, then forgetting the offense is the key to forgiveness. If forgiveness is the process that God takes us through to heal inner wounds, then forgetting the offense would be like removing the ugly external scars that we would have. How many of you have ever heard or uttered this statement? I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget what you've done. How many of you have ever heard someone say that? I'll forgive you, but I will never forget what you've done. The problem is that we hear that and say that so often that we believe that it's only natural to not be able to forget. And, it, and it's exactly that. It is natural. It's a natural reaction to hold a grudge. It's a natural reaction to be filled with anger. It's a natural reaction to want to get even. It's a natural reaction to resent someone for mistreating us. Those are all natural reactions or natural responses. But the problem is, is that we as God's people are not to live naturally, but we're to live supernaturally we're to respond in a supernatural way, which is we're to respond according to how would Jesus respond? And not giving in to natural inclinations, but to respond in ways that are pleasing to God. We must become people who, I love what I read not long ago, who write injuries against us in the dust and benefits done for us in marble. Injuries done against us in dust and just wipe them away. But when somebody does something for you, then chisel it in stone and remember what they've done and never forget. You know, so, I mean, I, I realize that this is difficult and some people think, well, you know what, that's, that's not possible. It's not possible to forget. I've been dealing with this for 50 years, 40 years. 30 years, this happened 20 years ago. You know, it's impossible. There's just no way in the world that I'll ever be able to forget this. And, the, and, and really, you know, in some ways, you're right. Because our mind, it wasn't designed by God to forget in the way that we think that we're referring. See, the way that God has made us with this internal fouling system, this thing called memory, you know, I doubt that we can fully forget even the things we want to forget. There are a whole bunch of things in my life that, man, I wish that I could forget and it would just never come back up again and it would just be gone forever. And yet at the same time, our minds are so remarkable that as one man writes, he writes this, the human mind is a fabulous computer. 
As a matter of fact, no one has been able to design a computer as intricate and efficient as the human mind. Consider this. Your brain is capable of recording 800 memories per second for 75 years without ever getting tired. The body can get tired, but the brain never does. It says a human being doesn't use more than 2% of his brain power, and of course some of us demonstrate this fact more obviously than others. <laughs> the point is, the brain is capable of an incredible amount of work, and it retains everything it takes in. You never really forget anything, you just don't recall it. Everything is on a permanent file in your brain. Now, if that is true, and because of facts like this, we need to understand that when we speak of forgetting, we're not doing so in a technical sense. You can't erase the data. And so what I want to do is take a look, number one, and that is to review the definition of to forget. Webster has the definition of forgetting as such. It says, the definition of to forget means to lose the remembrance of, to treat with inattention or disregard, to overlook, to cease remembering or noticing. The thought is, is that we are to actively choose to forget or cease to remember, or to fail to become mindful at the proper time. What does that mean in simple terms? It means to choose to not remember. It means to choose to not to bring it up at that appropriate time. It means to make a conscious decision to not bring up the past. Have you ever noticed that there are perfect moments, at least some of us believe so, to bring up some supposedly forgiven event from the past? And the longer that, for example, you've been in a relationship, you've been married, the easier it is to bring up things from a long time ago to bring up something supposedly that has been forgiven and you can hardly contain yourself, it's killing you. You just want to shout out, see, there you go again. It's just like it's right there in front of you. It's perfect. It's like, I gotcha. You've done it again. You did it January 4th, 1953. 62, 68, 74, and you just kind of go, this is great. It's, I can make my point. I had a friend who forgave her husband for making a bad financial investment, but she would have this little smirk that she would kind of share with him whenever they couldn't do something because their finances wouldn't allow it because he did this investment that she basically would like to say, I told you so, but she didn't want to say that. So she didn't say anything. She just smirks. She just gives him the look. Have you guys ever seen the look? 
Now, it goes both ways. The look, you know, a guy can give the look, a gal can give the look, and the look usually goes like this. And the look is usually followed by, what? <laughs> you, you got something you want to say? That's the way this plays out. You get the look and you get the what. And what God is saying is, he said, Chuck, you know, the, the, it's not the perfect time to bring that up. It's the perfect time to choose to forgive. Sometimes it can be funny. Most of the time, it's not funny. You know, I had a friend who, you know, made a, the, the, the poor choice of uh, choosing sexual immorality in his marriage, and his wife chose to forgive him, and uh, yet at the same time, every time an advertisement came on for an airline that this gal that he had had a sexual relationship with outside of his marriage, um, she worked for would come up she would have to make a choice. And she could make the choice of saying something or choosing to deliberately forget at that moment in time. But she had to make a choice. See, we have to make choices. Or the parents who chose to forgive their child and yet at the same time bring it back up over and over and over again. We've got to be careful that, you know, we don't beat that dead horse. That when somebody says, will you forgive me? And we say, yes, I'll forgive you. That not only do we forgive that person, but at the same time we choose to actively not remember. And they're two different things. I could bring it up right now, oh, this would be perfect. Perfect timing, same situation, oh, good time to get even, good time to bring it back up again and just remind him or her of how badly I was hurt so that I can continue to get them to jump through my hoop and manipulate them to do what I want them to do when I want them to do it. See, there's nothing that destroys relationships more than that type of manipulation. And God says, you know what? We need to choose to forget. Forgetting is, you know, forgetting is denying those urges to retrieve the data, even though in your mind you still remember. In other words, I must choose to forget and I must also learn how to do that because it doesn't come natural. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, let's take a look at four ways that we can learn how to, well, Chuck, how, how can I learn to forget? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In this passage, we find a clear, concise, and beautiful description of the highest form of love that any of us can experience. The Bible calls it agape love. It's the love that characterizes God himself and what he manifested in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. 
So the Bible teaches us that agape love is more than mutual affection. Um, you know, it expresses unselfish uh, esteem to the object that's loved. And so when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a passage that we hear oftentimes at weddings and things of that nature, uh, we see that, you know, there is a specific form of love, this agape love, that we can learn some things from. And, and starting with verse 4, we read this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love doesn't brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own and is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Notice that. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. The word means to calculate. It does not calculate a wrong suffered. Now to understand what God is trying to say to us is that if you truly love a person and you forgive them, then it doesn't take, you don't sit around calculating how to get even with somebody who has hurt you. The word calculating is, a, is a, an accounting term, which means to take into consideration or to make a plan. And it's like, okay, now that I've been hurt, how can I now hurt that person who's just hurt me? And so we sit around and we begin to calculate. We begin to figure out a game plan of how to hurt this other person. You know, God's love doesn't spend time calculating the evil that's been done to us or how to get even or get revenge. It refuses to dwell on it. Let me give you the opposite of the negative of calculating. And if you'll turn with me to uh, Philippians, look at Philippians chapter four, verse eight. We have the exact same word, and the word is to calculate or take into account. And in fact, in the parable of the, of the man who is building the tower, uh, Jesus says, well, which one of you who's building a tower doesn't calculate, you know, sit down and figure out the cost? You know, go through all the expense items. Well, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, here we're told to calculate something different. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, here's, here's our term, let your mind dwell on these things or calculate this. Think about this. Instead of thinking about getting even with your spouse or with a friend or with somebody at work or with somebody at school or somebody on your, your team or whomever, a neighbor or a, a family member, he's saying instead of sitting around thinking about ways of getting even with this person, he says, why don't you sit and calculate those things that are honorable and true, and right, and pure, and lovely, and of good repute, and if there's anything that's excellent or anything worthy of your praise, then let your mind calculate that. What do you think on a regular basis? Do you calculate getting even, or do you calculate loving another person? 
Do you calculate what is of good reputation or repute? Do you calculate that which is pure? Do you calculate that which is lovely? Or are your calculations set on how to hurt that person who has harmed you? He says, let not your mind calculate that, but let it calculate what is good. Let your mind dwell on these things. During the course of a week, course of a day, think about those things that are pleasing to God. Stop wasting time calculating on how to get even with somebody who has harmed you in some way. But think about all the things that God has done that are good in your life, that are lovely in your life, that are pure. Getting even with somebody is not a pure thought. Forgiving somebody is and forgetting what they've done. I was thinking about this one when I was studying and I thought, you know, if, if, if we could all live with the blessing that Linda and I live with today, and that is having a spouse diagnosed with a terminal disease. If we could all live with the blessing of knowing how short life can be, how much time would you spend calculating getting even with something that they did to harm you 10 years ago, five years ago, two years ago? We met a couple who was diagnosed, he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and I was speaking at a, a couple's retreat. And he had just been diagnosed that week, and they still came to the retreat. But they came to the retreat with eyes and ears that were different than they would have been a week before. Because it didn't matter anymore how he squeezed the toothpaste. It really didn't. Didn't matter anymore whether the toilet seat was up or down, or whether the, you know, the paper went this way or over the top. <laughs> you know, all, all those important things. See, you know, none of those things mattered anymore because they recognized that they're just not important. And one of the blessings of knowing that you're dying is that you don't get hung up on those things that you thought were such a big deal. They're not. They just, they just really aren't. And some of you are living in misery because you calculate how to get even with your spouse. That's sad. And all I can say is don't waste your time and how sad it would be if you found out what I found out and you had to live with the fact that you wasted the last several years of your life trying to calculate how to get even with somebody. And it's just not a spouse. It's just not your children and your friends and your family. Some of you are calculating regularly at work how to get even with a boss or a manager or somebody that you know, you can't stand. And you've created this monster in your head. See, we have a choice. 
And the choice is either we forgive and choose to forget the offenses done against us, or as Jesus said in Matthew 18, or we will be turned over to the tormentors or the torturers and have to live with that. The torturers, it's been written as a marvelously expressive phrase to describe what happens to us when we don't forgive another person. It's an accurate description of a gnawing resentment and bitterness, the awful gall of hate or envy. It's a terrible feeling. We cannot get away from it. We feel strongly the separation from another, and every time we think of them, we feel within the acid of resentment and hate, eating away at our peace and our calmness. This is the torturing that the Lord said will take place if we don't learn to forgive and to forget. A guy named Leonard Holt in Pennsylvania was one of those guys that showed up for work every day, Boy Scout leader, affectionate father, member of the local fire brigade, regular church attender, mired through the community as a model citizen. One day he showed up and he just started shooting his coworkers. And when they went to his house and they started to examine what was going on, they found different evidence, but they found evidence that this man, his life was filled with hate and anger and rage and resentment. And there were notes that were left behind how he couldn't wait to get even with those who had harmed him or those who had not given him the promotions that he thought he should have had. And he murdered six people. He was turned over to the torturers or the tormentors. And that was the result of such resentment. There was a man not long ago in the city of Anaheim, California, who killed his wife And he had to kill her, he said, because she didn't understand what he was going through. And he made a list of those he would kill that was left behind after he had shot himself. He says, not everyone on the list will receive total punishment, but they will be punished, he writes. The images in my mind shows me exactly how and when and where the punishment will be delivered. And it has to be done this way. In his letter, he wrote that he killed his wife because she didn't understand the premonitions and the images he had about people in his life who had done wrong or evil against him. Several times I tried to explain these things to her, but she dismissed them. I was never understood. I knew that these pictures and feelings would continue, and I had to prepare a way to develop a plan and make arrangements, and I have done so. Now I had to eliminate believe me she wouldn't listen so in order to keep her from finding out I developed a series or separate plans or storylines that totally misled her and I couldn't help but think I began to calculate I began to calculate plans and storylines that would mislead her they made her happy she was happy the day I killed her she suspected that we were missing a great deal of money she's also upset about several of my trips She reasoned only in black and white or good and bad. She never dealt in the gray or devious world, a world where now I totally exist. Turned over to the tormentors, to the torturers. Don't allow that to happen to you. And you can prevent it very easily by just choosing to forgive and choosing to forget and not bring up those things that would be 
perfect to bring up at that point in time, but to choose to make that a sacrifice to God. Instead of bringing it up, Lord, I'm gonna let you take care of it. Instead of bringing it up, I wanna forget about it. Instead of bringing it up, I wanna be thankful and remember that, you know what? You don't bring it up. You don't bring up what I did. You've allowed, you know, you've forgiven and you've forgotten. And I love that. See, it's, it's natural to want to get even. It's supernatural to forgive and to forget. And as believers, we're to live super, supernaturally. We're to make a statement to the world. There's a true story about two churches, or actually one church in the Midwest, and they had gotten into an argument about how the Lord's prayer should be said. And you know, and, and it's like, think about that. They argued about how the Lord's prayer should be said. And they got hung up on, two, uh, on one word, but they defined it two different ways. And they were on the words trespasses and debts. And they argued about whether you should say, forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our debts. And this thing became known to all the community. And people were watching to see how they would resolve it. And finally, they just came to a point where this church separated, this church divided into two churches, and the, and, the, and the writer of the story probably couldn't wait to run back to write about it because he said, and one church went back to their trespasses, and the other went back to their debts. And I thought, you know what, isn't that the way that it is? Boy, you know, we hang on to a position, and it's like, this is just the way that it's going to be. One went back to their trespasses and the other went back to their debts. What a terrible testimony it is to the world that we live in when we hold grudges and we live with resentment and we've got acid and bitterness and all the rest is dripping from our mouth. When we run around and trying to generate support for our side, whatever side that is, whether it's you're in the trespass side or the debtor side, whatever, it doesn't make any difference. And how God just must just, his heart aches and breaks. We have to learn to refuse to keep score. But I gave in last time but I'm always the one asking for forgiveness. Hey, you know what? It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Number two, we're also to rise above any offense. Look at Psalm 119, 165. Psalm 119, 165. The Bible says, those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. Those who love the word of God have great peace, and nothing gets you shook up. I like that. If you love God's word, you'll have great peace in your life. If God's word says, you know what, Chuck? You need to learn to forgive and forget. And I love the word of God, and that's what he tells me to do, and I choose to do that, then you know what? Then I'll have great peace in my life. I won't be subject to the tormentors, to the torturers. My, I won't be racked with, you know, this anger and this resentment. 
You know, I'm going to have, you know, a peaceful existence. We'll have great shalom in their life, great peace from God. You know, think about that. Do you love God's word? If you love his word, then you'll, what? Obey his commandments. If you love God, you'll obey his commandments, and his commandments are his word, and we find out in his word that, you know what? God wants us to be genuine servants like Jesus, and Jesus forgave, and he forgot to forgive and forget. Number three, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, uh, number four, re- resist developing a judgmental attitude. Look at Matthew chapter seven. Don't be hypocritical. Matthew seven, verses one through five. Don't judge lest you be judged, for in the way that you judge, you'll be judged, and by the standard of measure, it'll be measured to you. Now, why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out, and behold, the log is in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What he's saying is that, you know what? He's not saying we're not to judge each other, not saying that we're not to encourage one another to make right decisions, and if we're sinning before God, to stop doing that because there's consequences along the way. He's not saying any of that. He's blasting hypocrisy. He's saying that, you know what? You you can't judge people, you know, out of both sides of your mouth. You can't be guilty of the same sin or sin at all and, and, and hold it against other people. It's like, what are we doing? He's saying, hey, by the same standard that you're judged, God's going to judge us. And so we need to recognize that, you know what, we, we need to, you know, resist developing a judgmental attitude. And the fourth thing that we need to learn to do is remember our own weakness. And we find this in the life of the Apostle Paul, who was a genuine servant. Look at Philippians chapter 3, and we'll close as we look at this particular passage and the statements that he makes. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, it's important to understand the context in which these verses are found. You know, in Philippians 3, Paul lists a number of things in his past that he could have been really proud of. You know, his personal background in chapter, in verse four, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Hey, look at my background. If anybody has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. He says, but you know what? But whatever those things were gained to me, those things I have now counted as law, for the sake of knowing Christ. In comparison to Jesus and all the things that he made possible, forgiveness with God, love and righteousness and peace, everything that we may accomplish dims in significance. And in fact, compared to that standard, Paul had the healthy humility of a servant when he says in verses 12 through 14, notice this, not that I have already obtained it. He goes, or have already become perfect. But I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I also laid hold of by Christ. He's saying, brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it. Yet one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying, man, look at, I mean, look at he's saying, you know, I don't regard myself as laying hold of it. You know, I haven't arrived yet. 
I'm still working, you know, I'm still like the, the uh, VBS song that was sung, you know, kids under construction. You know, we're all still under construction. We're, none of us are like Jesus yet, although, although that's God's goal for us to become like Jesus, but we're all under construction. I haven't arrived yet. This guy was brilliant. He was gifted. He was an incredible leader. And he's saying, you know what, though? But there's still things about my life that aren't pleasing to God. And you know what? And I'm still being worked on by him. And as time goes on, I'm becoming more and more like Jesus every day. The question I have for you and for me is this. Is that true of us? Is that true of us? He says, I forget what lies behind. I don't go back to the past and all my accomplishments and go, oh, look at me. He's saying, you know what, not only good and bad, but I forget everything that lies behind. None of it matters. None of it matters. I live in the present. And that's a huge statement coming from a guy who was beat, who was left for dead, who was shipwrecked, um, you know, who was persecuted. And all you got to do is read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when you get a chance in your Bible and see what he went through. And for him to say, you know what, I choose to forget about it. That's a huge statement when you've gone through what he went through. I deliberately choose to forget it. Here's another good one for you. Guy's name is Joseph in the book of, in the book of Genesis. And his brothers hated his guts because he was immature to the point of suggesting to them that one day they would all bow down to him and didn't understand why his brothers didn't think that was a cool thing. And so, as he shared this vision that he had of how one day all his brothers would bow down to him, they grew to dislike him. And so, they sold him into slavery. And this process that God took him through to get him to where he ultimately was second in command of all of Egypt was fascinating because the Bible tells us that when he had a child, that he called his child Manasseh which means that God has made me to forget. Isn't that great? God has made me to forget. His son's name was Manasseh, a Hebrew name that meant forget. Every time that he saw his son, it was kind of like, hey, you know what? Forget about it. I know you've been through a lot. I know you were put in prison. I know you were sold into slavery. I know that you thought you were forgotten by God and everybody else. But you know what? Forget about it. Forget about it. Isn't that great? If I could convince you to, before you left here today, to take whatever hurt you have in your life, Whatever resentment, whatever bitterness, whatever acidy, ugly hatred is in your heart, and just forget about it, man, it changed your life. But it's your choice, not mine. I, I can't make you forget about it. Your spouse can't make you forget about it. No one can make you forget about it. You have to choose to forget about it. Amy Carmichael wrote these words, yes, I forgive. If I say yes, I forgive, but I cannot forget, 
as though the God who twice a day washes all the sands on all the shores of the world could not wash such memories from my mind, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. See, the cool thing is that when we forget what lies behind, then we have the energy to press on to what lies ahead. What does God have ahead for you? You'll never know until you forget about it. You just never will know. In closing, John Edmund Haggai tells a story regarding the tragic birth and the life of his son. Let me read this to you in closing. The Lord graciously blessed us with a precious son. He was paralyzed and able to sit in his wheelchair only with the assistance of full-length body braces. One of the nation's most respected gynecologists and obstetricians brought him into the world. Tragically, however, this man, overcome by grief, sought to find the answer in a bourbon bottle rather than in a blessed Bible. Due due to the doctor's intoxication at the time of delivery, he inexcusably bungled his responsibility. Says several of the baby's bones were broken. His leg was pulled out at the growing center. Needless abuse resulting in hemorrhaging of the brain was inflicted upon this little fellow. He says, let me pause long enough to say that this is no indictment upon doctors. I thank God for doctors. This man was a tragic exception. He was banned from practice in some hospitals, and as mentioned previously, he committed suicide. However, during the first year of this little lad's life, eight doctors said he could not possibly survive. For the first two years of his life, my wife had to feed him every three hours with a Brecht feeder. It took a half hour to prepare the feeding, and it took another hour just to clean up after him and put him back to bed. And not once during that time did she ever get out of the house for any diversion whatsoever. Never did she get more than two hours of sleep at any one given moment. My wife, formerly Christine Barker of Bristol, Virginia, had once been acclaimed by some of the nation's leading musicians as one of the outstanding contemporary female vocalists in America. From the time she was 13, she had been, a popu- she had been popular as a singer and constantly in the public eye. Hers was the experience of receiving and rejecting some fancy offers with even fa- fancier incomes to marry an aspiring Baptist pastor with no church to pastor. Then after five years of marriage, tragedy struck, and the whole episode was so unnecessary. Eight of the nation's leading doctors said he couldn't survive. And as he went along, she continued to use her beautiful voice no longer to enrapture public audiences with the story of Jesus, but now to utter them only to one who was muted and subdued to the humming of lullabies. John Edmund Jr., our little son, lived more than 20 years. We rejoice that he committed his heart and his life to Jesus Christ and gave evidence of a genuine concern for the things of the Lord. I attribute his commitment to Jesus and his wonderful disposition to the sparkling radiance of an emotionally mature, Christ-centered mother who has mastered the discipline of living one day at a time.
Never have I, he says, he goes on to say, never have I, nor has anyone else, ever heard a word of complaint from her. The people who know her concur that at 35 years of age, and after having gone through and subjected to more grief than many people twice her age, she possessed sparkle that would be the envy of any high school senior and the radiance and charm from which any debutante would gladly pay a fortune. She learned to forget what lies behind and press on to what lies ahead. She learned to live for today, to seize this moment, to live for today, to wring it of every opportunity. And that's what God's teaching me through this illness that I have, is that, you know what, live for the moment. Forget what lies behind. Don't waste any time because there's not much time. Live for the moment. Seize the day. Take advantage of the opportunities that God gives you today. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be a genuine servant who forgives and forgets? Are you willing to take another look at that passage that says if somebody has something against you, you'll stop what you're doing and you'll, and, and you'll go and you'll reconcile and then you'll return and you'll serve the Lord? Or will we continue to ignore the admonitions of God as we get confronted by these truths in his word that tell us that, hey, you need to do this. And all I gotta say is this, if God tells you you need to do something, do it. Because if you don't, you're taking a chance on being turned over to the tormentors or the torturers. And then you wonder, as we read stories about people who end up in this dark and dismal place, how does that ever happen? And they share it with us, and we ignore the path that they took. How did he end up murdering this, this group of people at work? Because he was filled with resentment. How does he end up murdering his wife? Because, you know what, she didn't understand. She didn't get it. And God says, you know what, if we're to be his people, forgetting and forgiving is possible only after we've been forgiven by God. I like what one man writes. He says, you know, a genuine servant is one who is not a getter but a giver, not one who holds a grudge but a forgiver, not one who keeps score but a forgetter, not a superstar but a servant. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just pray that we can be a servant, not a superstar, not one looking for attention, but one who just wants to be obedient to you and live this life seizing every moment that you give us so that we can wring out every opportunity that we have come before us today. God, I pray for those broken relationships. I pray for those who struggle with the acid of resentment, who are unwilling to forgive and forget that they would do so today, that they would be mindful of the forgiveness that they have in Christ, that they would be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven them. God, help us to become people who are genuine servants like our Lord Jesus Christ. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We just thank you for his example. In Jesus' name, amen.